Well, once again, we want to welcome you this morning or whenever you're watching uh, this program, this video. And uh, I'd just like to say that I, I, I did send you a, an email <clears throat> this past week. I think we posted maybe on social media as well about our tentative plans of coming back together as a church family for worship in person uh, beginning on June 7th. And so we look forward to that time. And yet, also, there's a lot of preparation to do before that, and we'll be coming to you in more detail as the time approaches. Now, if things change, then we're going to change as well. We're going to put your safety uh, first. And I'm so grateful that you're here with us this morning, and I, I feel like I have a, a word from God that'll be very special to you this morning. As we want to turn to 1 Peter chapter 2, we're continuing our series of messages through 1 Peter, and it's called Captured by Hope. Zig Ziglar, the late author, said this, you cannot consistently perform in a manner that is inconsistent with the way you see yourself. He goes on to say, the mind completes whatever picture we put in it. Now, the problem to that is this. The problem is a couple of, couple of things. One is that it's not that we're looking in a mirror and we're saying, oh, this is who I am, but rather we're getting the opinions of other people. And other people begin to form their opinions. We begin to compare ourselves with them. We begin to listen to the jokes, listen to the ridicule, whatever it may be. And we begin to form an opinion about ourselves. There's a story here about Bonnie. We'll call her Bonnie. Uh, she came to uh, a pastor in Georgia. And she was talking about uh, the problems that she was going through in life. And the pastor looked at her, or rather the counselor looked at her, I guess. And, and uh, he just looked at her and said, well, she pleasing in appearance. She dresses well. She presents herself so well. And he was surprised to learn that part of her problem is she, she just did not know how to act around men. And she was not attractive uh, to men at all, uh, from men at all. And so he began to talk to her and find out, found out that back when she was in junior high, she grew five inches in one year. In fact, by the time she was in high school, she was five foot ten and towered over everyone else. And she said, I can remember going to dances and never being asked to dance. I can remember going to places never being chosen for a softball team. And she said this, maybe you don't know what it's like to be in a group and be the only one that's not chosen. It makes you feel like a piece of junk. Well, we look at that and we realize that she was comparing herself to other people and she was looking at the world's value system of beauty, brains, brawn, and bucks. And she was looking at that and said, I don't measure up in that. On the other hand, we can go far too, uh, way too far with self-image and self-esteem. I remember John MacArthur, one of the authors, saying that we're going off the rails with self-esteem. We ought to be surrendering our hearts to Jesus Christ. And he had he had a lot of merit in what he was saying because in our generation, when I was raising my children, self-esteem and self-image was such a big thing. As a matter of fact, we always applauded everything our children did. We gave them a trophy whether they won the game or not. Whatever they were doing, oh, you know, you can believe in yourself. You can do anything, anything that you set your mind to do. Well, we found out that didn't work either. Uh, a study was done. And a survey was done and a, a test was given to many, many Japanese students as well as American students. And when they interviewed the Japanese and American students coming out of the test, they found out that Amer the Japanese um, 
students were saying they didn't do well on the test, but they did do well on the test. They did better than the Americans did. The American kids came out of the test saying, oh, we aced it. Man, man, we aced that test. And they, it came out, they didn't do well at all. And so sometimes the self-esteem can go the other direction as well. See, the key is to it all is not looking in the mirror at yourself, but not looking through a window either, comparing yourself to other people, but looking to Jesus Christ. Self-esteem, self-image is the true, can be defined as the true picture we have of ourselves that leads to an inner evaluation of our worth and competency in life. It's the true picture. Now, the problem is when we look in the mirror, we don't know what to think. We just begin to compare ourselves with everybody else. And that low self-esteem would cause us, as we're going through the trials of life, to say, well, I'm, I'm a piece of junk. No wonder God doesn't answer my prayer. Or God doesn't answer my prayer, therefore, I'm no more valuable to him than I am to anyone else in my life. Or if you have a high self-esteem, too high, an exaggerated one, you don't think you need God at all. I mean, after all, you can do it yourself. You can just go about things yourself. And so what happens? We look in the mirror or we look through the windows. We look through the windows of life. What are we comparing ourselves to? Well, again, the beauty, the brains, the bronze, the bucks, you know, the, the four Bs. And we can talk about those things with so many other things in life. And we always come up short. After all, you can always find someone that's prettier, someone that's smarter, and, and someone that has more money, somebody that has a better job, maybe some, some kids that you feel like are more adjusted than your, your children. And no matter what you're trying to take the world's value and making it something for yourself, you're going to come up short. And so on one hand, a poor self-esteem, God, I'm a piece of junk. On the other hand, a high self-esteem, you get into a place where you don't need God and then you get disappointed in life. You get maybe angry at God because you can't do everything that your parents said you could do. So what is the key? The key is comparing ourselves to Jesus Christ and getting our identity from him. Now, we've looked at that in one of these other messages in 1 Peter, in the first chapter. As Peter's writing a letter to persecuted Christians, the Bible says exile Christians, actually, they were persecuted, they were under trial, and this book was written that you and I could handle our trials in life. And he says one of the things is you need to know who you are. You need to remember, know who, and remember who you are, what you are, and how then, therefore, you should live. And those are three points this morning. We can look at it and we think who we are in Christ as he elaborates in verses 4 through 8. He elaborates from chapter 1 on that. And then what we are, which better explains who we are in Christ, and then the resultant part of that, how we live. So let's look at it. Beginning in verse 4 of chapter 2, we can find who we are in Christ. He says, as you come to him. And he's talking about coming to him for salvation. He's already talked about that in the rest of the book. Coming to him to salvation, being born again, as it says in verse 23 of chapter 1, you've been born again, not of the flesh, not of the will of man, but of God. You're not like grass is going to fade away. You've come to him. Now, that you've come to him, who are you? He says this, a living stone. You've come 
You've come to a living stone, rejected by men as Christ was when he died on the cross, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. So we get a look here at, uh, and we're going to look at these in the next few verses as building imagery, which is constantly used throughout the Bible, like a temple or a house built or any building built. And he says, the first thing you want to start is with a living stone. He's called living because he's resurrected from the dead. It's talking here about the rock, Jesus Christ. All throughout the Bible, he's compared to a stone. He's compared to a rock. Why? Because he's the foundation to life. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, he says these words. He says, everyone been here who hears these words of mine and does them be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the, the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it was founded upon a rock. These winds and storms, they are the trials of life. He says the trials of life came, but it didn't fall because it was founded upon a rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them would be like a foolish man who builds his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew. Same trials. They hit us all. It says they blew against that house and it fell. And great was its fall because it had no foundation. It was just simply founded upon whatever value of life was found out there. The sand just represents Anything, any germs off the street, any value of man that you build your house and your life upon. So he's, he's talking here about something that's alive, something chosen by God, something precious because it's the very son of God. But let's read on because then it talks about us. Verse five, you yourselves like living stones being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. He's saying, look, Jesus is the rock, the living stone. And as we participate with him, as we, what did we say last week? When we're born again, 1 Peter or 2 Peter 1.4 tells us that we become partakers in the very nature of God. And so as we do that, Jesus Christ comes into our heart represented there by the Holy Spirit of God. And what happens is then we become partakers of the divine nature and we become like a living stone. And in this living stone, we're not by ourselves. Very important. Jesus is saying, it's who you are, but it's who you are not only as an individually individual, but collectively as well. These living stones come together and they form a building. All of us together, receiving Christ, coming together as what the Bible calls the living church of God as well. And he says here that we're a holy priesthood, and we'll come back to that in just a minute. And then it says, a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifice acceptable to God. That's things like praise, worship, giving, preaching of the, of the gospel. It's things that are honoring to God. And so we look at this and we see this building imagery in verse 5. Then it, it goes on in verse 6 to explain it even more. It compares Jesus to a different kind of rock, a different aspect of the stone. It says, for it stands in Scripture, behold. Now, when it says it stands in Scripture, it means he's quoting uh, from the Old Testament. 
and quoting from other places in the Bible, and therefore it has a foundation here. And Peter being Jewish, talking to somewhat of a Jewish audience, he's referring back now to the Old Testament to give him some credence in his argument, some, some foundation to his argument. He says, laying in Zion a stone, he calls at this time a corner stone. Again, he's saying the same thing, chosen by God, precious to God, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. And put to shame means never be disappointed. Never be ashamed, oh, I, I profess Christ, but it didn't work. He says, if you place your faith in this cornerstone, why is he comparing it, Jesus, to a cornerstone? Well, when you're building a building back in the day, in the New Testament times, the cornerstone was the most important stone. It was the it's where you started your building. So it had to be a strong stone, but it also had to be fitted. It had to be just right. The angles of the building were going to be determined by the cornerstone. The rest of the stones put on top. What, is it going to be plumb? If the cornerstone is off, the building's going to go sideways. If the cornerstone is off, as far as foundation, the whole foundation goes downhill or uphill. The angles had to be perfect in every way. And it says, he is the first fruits. 1 Corinthians 15, 20 says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead and he's the, the first fruits of those who are, who've gone to sleep. And so we look at this and we, we wonder, where's the application? Where's, where's Jesus coming? Where's Peter really talking about Jesus and where is he coming from? Listen, Jesus could be your cornerstone today but it doesn't have to be. Your cornerstone of life is your rock of life. Whatever your cornerstone is, it is your foundation to life. It's your non-negotiable. It's something that you cannot do without. It's something that you build the rest of your life upon. And it doesn't have to be Jesus. It could be beauty. It could be that you look at yourself and say, well, you know, I've been told I've been, I'm, I'm so beautiful, I'm so pretty. And so you're captured by that. And when you find someone else prettier than you, wins a contest uh, over you, you're hurt very deeply because that is your identity. You're a beauty queen. You uh, perhaps uh, are a ball player. And you think to yourself, I'm going all the way to the major leagues, but you don't. And you find out there are hundreds of ball players better than you then it fails you as well. And even as a job, you say, well, I've got a great job. I, I, you know, Pastor, don't you know that a man is what a man does? I've got a great job. You could be laid off. You could be furloughed from that job or you could retire early from that job. You could be forced to retire early from that job. Then, then who are you? Who are you then? You see, whatever you can't live without becomes your foundation of life. And if it's not the rock of Jesus Christ, it's the sand of life. And those things will always disappoint. It always, it always ends badly for us. And so, where are you? He says in verse 7, so the honor is for you who believe. God's honored you. You're, you're a precious living stone, part of the church. Honored you that believe. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Why do you stumble? 
you stumble over a rock usually because you don't see it. And you just don't see it. You say, well, look, I, I know I'm a Christian. I know that Jesus lives in my heart. And yeah, he is my cornerstone. But there are things that you just feel like you cannot live without or you, at least you can't be happy without those things. There are things that you're building maybe your life upon and you're blinded to it. And so you begin to trip over it because you don't see it. How many people have I shared Christ with in the past that have said, wow, you know, I see it now. I've invited Jesus into my heart. I see it. Boy, I didn't see it before. I just, I just didn't see it. And so I'm asking you to open up your eyes today and examine your heart. And in a sense, yes, look into the mirror of the word of God and ask yourself the question, is he really my cornerstone? Because as you go through life, whether it's fighting this COVID-19, whether it's uh, a furlough of a job, whatever you're fighting in life, whatever you're going through in life, if you are not grounded on the cornerstone, a living stone on the cornerstone, and allowing Christ to be that foundation in life, it's going to be very, very difficult for you to have a proper self-image and very difficult for you to handle the adversities of life. And so what does all this mean? Well, we need to get our identity in Jesus Christ, but then he goes on to explain what that means. And really the central verse to the entire book of 1 Peter is really in chapter 2, verse 9. And he gives us a few things, four things, that we are in Christ and what we are. Verse 9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of God's own possession. He says four things. You, first of all, are a chosen race. Now, it's just like Bonnie in our story. She wanted to be chosen. Maybe you've been on a ball field before and they've chosen up teams and you've been the last one to be chosen and you have to play on some team. You know, the, the PE teacher or your teacher, whoever's on the playground, says you have to play on some. And so they argue on who has to take you. You feel like you're on the outside. You're not on the inner circle. You say, yeah, I want to be chosen in that way because I'm such a good ball player. This word does not mean that you're choice, that you were chosen in such a way of earning because you've earned merit in some way. It's not like USDA, whatever that means, USDA choice beef. You're chosen because you were special. No, God, even in the nation of Israel, as he chose the nation of Israel through, through Abraham, when he chose them, he says, look, it's not because you were the greatest. In fact, he says, it was the least. You were the least among the people. I think it's kind of a circular argument here. He says, I chose you. I loved you because I loved you. I, I just, I loved you. And I know it started with Abraham, and he loved Abraham, and he chose Abraham. But he says, I loved you. And it's the same way with us. The Bible says that he, he loves us because he loves us. And as we look at this, we, we look and we realize that we cannot possibly. He says a race, a chosen race, which means that I no longer identify first, we'll just say as an American. I identify as a Christian first. That's where I get my identity. That's what comes first. And if you are from another country, you've come and maybe from Russia, and you say, I'm a Russian-American. Well, you don't look at that as, you're not a Russian first anymore. You're a Christian first. Well, I came from Mexico. Well, you're not a Mexican or a Hispanic Christian or whatever you want to call it. No, you're, you're a Christian first. That becomes your first and foremost identity, and it's like a new race here. 
meaning the whole imagery of a building. We're all fitted together. We're all together. One writer said this, individualistic Christianity is an absurdity. Christianity is a community within the fellowship of the church. Now, I know in our generation, we've emphasized over and over and over again the personal relationship with Jesus Christ, and it is an individual thing, but it's also a corporate thing as well. We're all fitted together. We all have different spiritual gifts. There are people that you're praying for right now that other people need to be praying for, and as you get together as a group, there's some people that identify, and they can pray for people that nobody else can pray for. There are gifts that you can use in the body of Christ and reach people that nobody else can reach. We're all a team together. We just can't simply do it by ourselves, and we were never meant to be alone. You've heard me give the illustration of even about God, God the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, the Trinity of God, impossible to explain. But it is noteworthy that God had fellowship with himself even before he created man. We're a chosen race together. We're part of a team. It's a corporate chosen a corporate election as well as an individual relationship with Jesus Christ. But then we find out we're a royal priesthood. It says in verse 9, a chosen race, a royal priesthood. What does a priest do? Well, a priest prays for others, intercedes for others. He ministers to others. He, he shares the word of God with others. That's what we're to do. We're, we're royal. We're, we're part of the king's priesthood. Back in the Old Testament times, a priest would wear a breastplate and had 12 stones on the breastplate with the names of the tribes of Israel. And it was his job, part of his job, to pray for those people and those tribes. Jesus himself, being our high priest, is in heaven. And dear friends, as one guy said, one man said, it's like your names are written on his chest, closest to his heart. And the Bible says he's sitting at the right hand of the Father and he's ever making intercession or praying for us day by day and night by night and 24-7. He's right there praying for us at our high, as our high priest. How much we should also, as priests, royal priests, pray for one another. 1 Samuel said this. In 1 Samuel, the Bible says, moreover, uh, Samuel said, as for me, Far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by what? Ceasing to pray for you. That I would sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. You and I praying together, working together. But then he says this about this body, this building that he's talking about. He says, you're a holy nation. Again, you're thinking about a race and then a priesthood is more than one priest. And so we're together as a group, as a church for something. Now, when he talks about a holy nation, we've already talked about holiness and the word comes from wholeness, but it also talks about your conduct and your deeds as it was talking about that in the first chapter, verses 16 and 17 in a previous message. A holy nation. Now, when we look at the word nation in the original language, it comes from a word meaning ethnic. It's a holy ethnic. 
and it's a holy in the sense that it was cut apart, cut, cut, cut away, set apart, like, as we said, cutting a magazine article out so you can use it later, put it in a file, use it later. It's cut out. We've been cut out for conduct, cut out for deeds and a purpose with a new ethnic. Now, ethnic means really a common culture. That's what it kind of refers to. You have common cultural traits, okay? And, um, you know, even in sports or jobs, you have certain cultural language that you use. Uh, sports, same way. Look at bowling, for example. Now, I know the, a lot of you uh, may not realize this, but my, my dad was uh, the best bowler in Athens, Georgia, for many, many years, or one of the best. And I was in, even in a league myself at one time. There's a whole language there. The whole, they, they have their own uniforms. Man, you, you come up there with this um, silk shirt on or silk-looking shirt. It's really polyester, but got patches all over it. Man, who does that? You got Pat, high game over here, high game with a handicap, high series, champions of the Kiwanis League or whatever. Then you have uh, somewhere the sponsor, you know, they have sponsors. Different businesses are sponsoring these bowling teams. And then the vernacular, the, the language they use. I'm not talking about the bad four-letter words. and They may use that too. But the, the language, like some of you know what a split is. You bowl before and you know that's when the, the, the pins are separated. But you know if the head pin's standing, and you have a split, it's called a washout. And then three strikes in a row is called a turkey of all things. And you have the pocket, you have the head pin, you have the pocket, and that is on the right side of the head pin if you're right-handed. If you go to the left side, it's called a Brooklyn side. And if you have a strike, it's called the Brooklyn strike. Now, if you were coming in, you would never know what they're talking about. You, you wouldn't. Well, somebody yells out when he goes to the wrong side, Brooklyn, and, and they have a strike, and everybody says, what, what are they talking about? They're talking about a turkey, three strikes in a row. Man, that sounds really bad, but it's something good. And so they don't understand it. It's a different culture. You walk in and see these shirts, and you think, man, they're ruining those shirts with all those patches over it. You don't get it. Golf, same thing. Man, what, what you know, I was playing golf with my wife the other day, and um, I hit one near the shaft, you know, as I was swinging my, my club. And I said, wow, you know, that didn't go well. I hit it right on the hosel. And she said, what is a hosel? You have all kinds of, of, of language to use on this. You've got, for example, um, you have a slice. You have a hook. You have um, a divot. You're going to get a divot. You don't want to get that on the green, but you get a, a divot. You, you have to, um, as you're playing golf, you've got all kinds of scores, like a birdie and a bogey and You've got a whole different language. You've got a whole different culture. In a ball game, in a baseball game, you hear cheering and yelling and screaming and hit the ball. I mean, everybody's yelling and screaming at you as you're trying to bat. Now, think about it. The concentration it takes to hit a 90, 95-mile-an-hour fastball, and everybody's screaming at you. And that's culturally okay. That's what they expect. If the whole place is silent, it would be like it was eerie. But in golf, you've got a ball up on a tee, and it's just sitting there. It's not going 95 miles an hour. It's just sitting there. And the man is doing all this kind of practice swinging as he get out, this routine as they call it. He stands up to the ball and he hits the ball. And you have these signs go up. It's quiet. And if you say anything, they'll, they'll take you out. They'll ask you to leave. They'll escort you off the course if you're loud. 
it's, it's a cultural thing. As a Christian, we have, we don't go by the culture of this world. We have our own ethnic and our Christianity, therefore, affects our ethnic in every area of life. We have, in a sense, our own language that we have to watch sometimes because we want people to understand the gospel. We have our own, uh, for example, socially today, everything, all of our devices that we have are made to screen people out of our life. But as a Christian, I don't want to screen people out of my life. I want them to come into my life so I can affect them. It affects our marriage. We have marriage ideas from the Bible, roles, relationships that the world frowns upon, laughs at, and is really trying to change us because we're just so stupid. And, the, and how we raise kids and what we do with our homeschool, Christian school, this, that, they, they don't get it at all. They don't, they don't get why we come to church, perhaps, and sit there and, and sing. Man, we've been standing up and singing. You haven't sang all week. Nobody sings anymore unless it's in their car. And yet you come to church and start singing and raising your hands. They don't get it. They don't get why uh, it takes 15 hours to study the Word of God for one sermon. As one guy was saying on a website one time, it took him about 20 minutes to come up with an hour speech to his business. Well, it's probably worth about 20 minutes, but nevertheless, people don't get it because it changes. Our culture changes, and it changes everything that we do. We're no longer, the biggest thing, we're no longer living for us. We live for others. We go through our life trying to change ourselves from being selfish to being, from being self-centered to being other-centered, to put others before us. It's a counter culture. We're a holy ethnic. We're a holy nation before God. And we find out when we look into the mirror, we're comparing ourselves over and over and over again with the same people and, and, and we're, we're grading ourselves on that curve. If we look through the window at other people and the beauty and the brains and the bronze and the family and, and, and everything else at our cornerstone, they will always disappoint us. It always ends badly. Jesus Christ is the only master that will not disappoint you. He's the only master that will not come back to haunt you. Well, then we find we're a possession of God. You know, I could have just stopped right there and just come, came straight to this point. We're a people of God's own possession. How did he do that? Because he died on the cross for us. He said he paid a ransom for us. He bought us or redeemed us out of slavery of sin. So the things that we're doing are not going to keep on hurting us. He's bought us with a price of the blood of Jesus Christ. And we're his, that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into the marvelous light. That's what he did. Called us out of darkness into this great and marvelous and wonderful light. And he says, you were once a person, people that didn't receive mercy, but now you have. He says, there's a difference in your life. You're valuable to God. You're valuable. Now, how do you measure value? Well, probably in our world, you measure it by a couple of things. One is who owned it before. And, um, and secondly, probably um, how much you're willing to pay for it. How much you're willing to pay for something. JFK, uh, John F. Kennedy's golf clubs a few years ago went for $772,500. $772, 
and there was not a, a bit of modern technology in any of those clubs. Napoleon's toothbrush. I read this. Napoleon's tooth. I didn't even know they had toothbrushes back then. $21,000 because of who owned it and who was willing to pay for it. $21,000 in an auction. How valuable are you? Well, you're valuable enough, pretty valuable, as Jesus Christ died for you and spilt his blood for you on the cross. That is, dear friends, that's pretty valuable. You are a value, a great value, a precious living stone to the Lord. Now, as we look at this and we close, we understand that Romans 8 tells us this. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? <clears throat> if he did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also freely give us all things? God is for you. Wherever you are right now, say that. Either out loud or to yourself, God is for me. God is for me. How do we know God is for you? Because he died for you. And if he died for you and God gave his only son to die on the cross for you, will he not, just logically, Paul is saying, also freely give you all things? The rest of it, he's saying the rest of it is easy. The rest of it is easy. So how then should we live? How should we respond to this? This is not an exhaustive list. I'm preaching the text this morning. But there's a couple of things here in general that Paul gives us direction to do beginning in verse 11. First, he says, you need to avoid something. What to avoid? He says, beloved, I urge you. He says, I, he, he's, it's an urgency here. This comes from the word urgency. I encourage you with urgency that as, as sojourners, strangers, and exiles to abstain, to leave alone, to leave it out from the passions of the flesh which wage war against the soul. He says passions. Well, these are desires, and desires are a good thing. Passion's a good thing. But just like fire in the fireplace is a wonderful thing, in the walls it's a bad thing. Misplaced passion. To want things, this kind of passion, you want something, and maybe it's for pleasure, but you want something more than you want God. At the moment of temptation, you yield to that temptation because you want it more than you want God, but it's just like a drug that gives you a, a temporary high, but then grabs you and addicts you and enslaves you. He says this. He says, they wage war against your soul. Now, God is a king, and every king has a kingdom, and every kingdom has rules, but his rules are to help you and to help me. What to avoid? You avoid these things, and you're going to avoid a lot of suffering that would happen in your life. He's telling these people, look, you're going to go through trials, but avoid the suffering that you can avoid. Don't wage war on your own soul. Don't do things that are going to hurt you, but rely rather on Christ, the real cornerstone of life. Then he says to us on what we need to achieve. He says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Plato once said something to the effect, as people were talking about him, he says, I'm going to live in such a way 
that nobody will believe them. Nobody will believe the gossip. Missionaries were preaching the gospel to an Indian tribe, and an Indian tribe, American Indian tribe, that had been mistreated by the white man. And uh, the chief got up after the sermon and said to something effect, he says, we're going to watch and see how these white men treat us to see whether their, their message is true. How do you live? How do we conduct ourselves? The Bible says, <clears throat> live in such a way that's honoring to God, obeying the word of God, going to the word of God and not trying to say, where is it in the word of God? I cannot believe it because I want to have my pleasure. I want to have my, uh, my things in life that I want to do, but rather just say, God, here's your word and I'm here to obey it. And then it talks about good deeds. And he comes back to this from a previous verse in chapter one. He says, good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. That is the day when Jesus Christ comes back again. He says, good deeds. Good deeds. Not only a conduct, but also a ministry to other people. People are going to know us, as we said last week, by the love we have for others. How do we do that? We live in such a way that we live for others. And also we minister in such a way to others, to help them, to help them. As we look at this passage, we understand that <clears throat> Peter is saying, look, I want to prepare you for the trials. I want to prepare you for the trials, the adversities, the suffering that you're going to experience in life. But he says, you can't think more of yourself than what you need to, at least not in the flesh. You cannot think about yourself less than what you need to. And if, as long as you're looking in the mirror and comparing yourselves to others, as long as you're looking through the window and look, using the world's value system, you come out at a loss. You come out hurt. You come out unable to withstand the adversities and the storms of life. But he says, if you join up and identify with the cornerstone, the perfect stone, and build your life on that foundation, that will prepare you for the trials ahead. Because you, in all the suffering, in all the storms, in all the disappointment, you will remember who you are and what you are in Jesus Christ. Bonnie was such a, a lady that needed to understand that. She needed to come to Christ like the story about the, the teacher that was uh, teaching small children and uh, in her preschool class, five-year-old class, a little girl, a new student came by the name of Barbara, never said a word, always stood in the corner, never talking to anyone. And one day in this Christian preschool, they were talking about heaven and the teacher was talking about heaven and the little girl asked a question. She raised her hand. She, the teacher was very surprised. True story. And Barbara asked the question, Miss, Miss Pat, was heaven made for little girls like me? She came to the realization of who Jesus Christ really is and maybe what he could really do for her life. What about you today? What about you? Are you busy comparing yourselves to yourself or everybody else? Are you using the world's value system or God's value system? And the biggest question is, 
where are you building your life? You're building your life on something. Something's the cornerstone of your life. Is it Jesus? I pray that it is. And if it's not, that you would make him the cornerstone today. Let's pray together. And in the quietness of this moment, our heads bowed and eyes closed, I just want to challenge you right now that you would contemplate where you are with Jesus Christ even right now. And you would think to yourself, God, what do I need to do right now? What decision do I need to make at this moment that would make the most difference in my life? And it could be as a believer, you have a certain decision you need to make. Maybe you say, you know, I've gone away from the word of God. It's my spiritual food. I'm not praying as a priest for other people. I've given up. Or I'm discouraged. I need to go to God in prayer for myself right now. And I need to pour my heart out to God. What decision do you need to make that would make the biggest difference in your life? And if you're not a believer, if you're convinced this morning that you don't know that you're a Christian, I would invite you to receive Jesus Christ this morning. In the quietness of our, our time together here, with heads bowed and eyes closed, I want to pray for you. And as I pray for you, I'm going to pray a prayer that I prayed many years ago to invite Christ into my heart. And if you pray this prayer, I believe, if you mean it, that Jesus Christ will come into your heart to save you. Let's pray. Would you just repeat this prayer after me? Lord God, thank you for loving me. Thank you for going to the cross and paying for my sin. Thank you that I'm that valuable to you, that I'm precious to you. I open up my heart to you and ask you to come in. I want to be born again, born from you, all my sin forgiven, and a new way of life starting today as you teach me to walk with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. You can find more sermons and other information at crosslifechurch.com.